Well, hello, this is Jim Patton. I'm the host of the MOH podcast. Welcome to the show. Uh, this show is available on our website, the MOH.org site, which is our Ministry of Help site. You can find it on iTunes. You can get it at podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N, podbean.com. You can also get the Podbean app for your iOS or Android devices, and you can listen that way. Uh, if you were tuned in last week, you would have heard a part one of this episode. It's called Day of the Locust Part One. Today we're doing, obviously, Day of the Locust Part Two. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of introduction necessary this week because you need to go back and listen to last week's anyway. So we're going to make a short intro and right into uh, Winky with Part Two, Day of the Locust. Okay, because afternoon is the pips for learning, amen? Uh, we're only going to do one hour. I'm not going to give you two. We're going to try and finish off this uh, Eastern thought forms. Anybody come in this afternoon and was not here this morning? His boo, his boo. All right. Uh, let us then, um, just in brief, give you a, uh, a summary of what we've dealt with this morning. We're looking at Eastern. Can I erase this? This is beautiful printing. I just feel awful erasing it. Very orderly mind that did there. Um, can somebody please give me the steps to the destruction of a nation? Four steps to the destruction of a nation. Israel's, yes? First one. They forgot God. They forgot. Secondly, they forgot His laws. They made up new gods or made up other gods. Gods that were not gods. And then finally, made up new laws. Those of you here this morning, we traced very briefly the warnings God gave to Israel. said, don't do this or you'll, you'll be destroyed. And we talked about the spiritual destruction of a nation. Now, it seems like from the scriptures, God has three ways of getting a nation's attention that's turned us back on him. The first one is to deal with their economy and pinch them in the pocket. That's the first one. If that doesn't work, then he deals with their ecology and plays games with their weather. If that doesn't work, he raises up a nation and invades them. And that's his three ways. Now, the question is, <laughs> where is the United States in this situation? And uh, very interesting. Anyway, just threw that in for extra excitement. Now, these four steps, we have, uh, in the United States, we have seen the last number of years this progression taking place. God warned, and we gave a large number of scriptures from Deuteronomy and other places, God warned, when I bring you into this beautiful land, we mentioned how when the pilgrims first came to the U.S., they thought of themselves another Israel that God had brought them to the U.S. To, do, to found a new nation, a nation with spiritual principles that would be ruled in a godly way. And uh, the warning that God gave to Israel, they in those early days accepted as a warning for themselves. When God gives you this beautiful land, beware lest you forget the Lord. Beware lest you forget the laws that, he, that are supposed to be taught to your children's children. And... Uh, and then these other ones, making up new gods, lest you go and uh, make up gods that are no gods. And then finally make up new laws. We have said that these first two would really account for these counterfeits that we mentioned. 
earlier, the counterfeit love, counterfeit wisdom, counterfeit worship, counterfeit power, and other counterfeits of divine originals. This one here deals with what we've called the locust invasion, invasion of Eastern thought forms to take people away from the biblical memories of God, to eat out, if you like, all of the moral memories that have been placed in this culture concerning righteousness. And when that happens, the nation is open then to make up new laws, new interpretations of the way the universe fits that exclude the biblical picture of man, God, and the universe. So this final one, the making up of new laws, is the coming new consciousness, which I will call psychic technology. And we won't get to that until tonight. But I want to broach for you these four locust concepts, the uh, demonic ideas that have been brought in to introduce the worship of new gods to a world that once had a Christian base. Could you give me, please, now, the first of these Eastern concepts? First locus. Yeah, neither Jesus nor the Bible are absolute truth. They probably wouldn't say absolutely true. They would say there's no absolute truth. But though they are true and probably fully true, they're not absolutely true in the sense that they're not the final word. To find the final word, you'd have to study everybody, and then when you've studied everybody, then you could say that was final truth. So the point is that neither Jesus, the Lord Jesus himself, nor the Bible is in, its, in itself or in himself absolute truth. And the idea of this is a spiritual geometry that Christianity is only one small square in a much broader spiritual geometry, and that though it is true, it is not exhaustive. And the Bible picture is this. What you learn of Christ is true, and it is not exhaustive, but He is exhaustive. He is. When He says He's the truth, He doesn't mean He's partially true, or He's partial truth. He means that every system of thought finds its genesis, and it's Exodus, it's Alpha and Omega, it's Genesis and Revelation in Him. That's what it means. Um, Dr. C.I. Schofield said a lot of dumb things, but he said some very good things too. And one of the few good things that he said was this. Truth is not crystalline. It is fibrous. And by that, I think he meant this. You can't take a piece of truth and just cut it out. It belongs to a matrix, just like a root of a tree. You find a little root, and you follow it far enough, you'll hit the taproot, you hit the whole trunk and all the branches. So we could say this about any reality. You find it far enough, follow it far enough, and honestly, you'll come smack dab into Jesus Christ and into the scriptural picture of the universe. It's not crystalline. It's not a little isolated chunk. It is connected to all reality. There's a beautiful scripture in the book of Colossians, and it goes like this, that he is before all things, and by him all things consist, speaking about the Lord Jesus, creator of the universe. And the word consist, or hold together, is the word sistemo, from which we get the word systems. And the original idea of this is that Christ is the Lord of all systems of reality. He is the ultimate cohering point about which all disciplines, all the arts, all the sciences, all, uh, all the major disciplines and understandings 
of the universe cohere. They find their focal point in Jesus Christ. That should be a tremendous um, uh, sense of adventure for us because that means this. If we follow Jesus Christ, given enough time, we shall follow all of the disciplines of reality. We'll come out as artists, we'll come out as poets, we'll come out as scientists, we'll come out as historians, we'll come out as... Follow him long enough and you will come out into any reality. That anything that's true in the universe is connected ultimately to him. Maybe this will help us. In him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that is a literal statement. He is the sum of all spiritual things. And all anything else, too. He fits the heart of everything. Okay, that's one. Number two. Number two. Second locus concept. You shall not surely die. You will not, you will die, but not surely. There's no such a thing as a final death. And I want to read you uh, one quote from a locust philosopher. Dude's name was Plotinus. He lived 1,700 years ago. And this is what he said about this. And I want, I want to give you the... Uh, give you the scary thing about this. I want to tell you about a movie called Logan's Run. Plotinus said these horrible words. Still more, what does it matter when people are devoured only to return in some new form? And we talked here about the concept of karma and then the doctrine from this of recurring births Reincarnation, fundamental to every Eastern philosophy. I don't care where it comes from. In Guru Maharaj, it can be Krishna consciousness, it can be Paramahansa, Yogananda, or Ramdas, or Bombadas, or Bombadu, or whoever. The whole trip boils down. You always see this at the heart of it. Baba Frijan. <laughs> Remember Mario saying, uh, we will not have a problem with public facilities now that Baba Frijan has come. <laughs> ultimate burn. Um, the concept here of reincarnation is not taught in the scriptures. We went through at some length on that, summing up those basic arguments. Uh, these people try to show that reincarnation is taught in the scriptures, saying that John the Baptist was the reincarnation of Elijah. We pointed out that unfortunately, in order to be reincarnated, you have to first of all be excarnated, and Elijah was the only person Besides Enoch in the scriptures who never died, who still has the same body. So Elijah with the body coexisted with John the Baptist with the body. And Jesus uh, spoke to Elijah and Moses on the mountain of transfiguration. And the disciples saw him speaking to him and did not mention there that they saw a headless John the Baptist. And uh, we also looked at what this thing means. This is Elijah. This to come and get the notes on that that the spirit which is to come upon John the Baptist was the same Holy Spirit who anointed Elijah to prepare the coming of Jesus Christ. There may be a prophetic shadow in this, that before Jesus returns a second time, some Bible scholars believe the two prophets that preach, one is Enoch, one is Elijah, second time Jesus comes again, then they will return in person. Being killed, therefore fulfilling scripture, is appointed unto man once to die. That all men will die and be raised again just like all of us who trust in Jesus. Okay, that's those two. One little scary thing. 
finish off this locust dude, it comes to no more than the murder of one of the persons in a play. The actor alters his makeup and returns in a new role. Now think of the role now of television and of movies. You go and see a TV program and a guy gets shot and killed in front of your eyes. Boom, boom, he's blown away. Boom, and that's the end of the movie. You go, oh, he died, you know. And the end comes on and runs through. And then there's a Coca-Cola commercial and you only go around once in life. Isn't that interesting that a beer commercial should have a Christian premise? You only go around once in life. <laughs> totally busting this thing. But then, straight afterwards comes the next series and there's your guy who just got blown away in the light. He's back again. He's on a new role. He's got glasses on now, small mustache, and here he is, back again. And you see, day after day, week after week, a replay of reincarnation. As Platina said, all you do... Death, all it is, is death is going off stage and putting on a new makeup and then coming back out and playing again. It's only a play, that's all it is. Every time somebody is murdered, it's only a play. When whole cities are reduced to ashes and people are burned to crisp and fried in gas ovens and by the millions exterminated, it's only a play. That's why the Maharishi said in his commentary on the Gita, the truly wise man will never weep. Here is this young archer. He's a beautiful young guy in, in the Gita. That's the whole front of the story. And in the morning, he has, he's got a heartbreaking task because his dharma, the thing he has to do, his destiny, if you like, is to be a good archer. And he's very good. And anybody who shoots at he will kill. But tomorrow morning, he's going to face all of his relatives and his friends. And many of them are close relatives. And if he shoots him, he'll kill them. And he's in anguish. So he cries out to Lord Krishna and he says, what shall I do? I have to do my thing, and if I do my thing, I'll kill people close to me, and I don't know what to do. And he's a very sensitive and moral young man. And Lord Krishna says to him, in effect, go ahead and kill him. It doesn't matter. You don't really understand death. If you kill these people, you'll be doing your thing, and you'll just be cycling them back so they can return in a new role sooner. So the Maharishi puts as a commentary to this, the truly wise man will never weep. You can contrast that with Christ, if you like, weeping over Jerusalem, and you tell me which is a true picture of reality. Bible, death is an enemy. It is the final enemy that will be destroyed. But it is an enemy. Remember when Jesus came, and they said, your friend Lazarus is dead, and Jesus wept? Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. One, one uh, neat thing I heard on that once, maybe Jesus didn't weep because he was dead, Maybe he wept because he'd have to, he knew Lazarus had gone to be to paradise and he had to bring him back again to the same filthy world and run him through again. And that's why he wept. The Bible pictures that he was angry as a real gut level reaction. As a split gets so mild. It's a deep, angry sadness there. God is angry with death. It's an enemy in the Bible. And when somebody you love is, uh, dies or is killed in an accident or something like that, uh, it's right for you to feel angry. God feels angry. I, uh, I had a friend of mine killed in New Zealand a couple of years ago, and I wrote a very angry poem about death. And uh, it was just addressed to death. And I said, death, you are my enemy. They've said it must accept you, and I do not accept you. You know, you can nail me down, but I'm going to rise again. <laughs> Could have uh, Dallas home 
I've written a song on that called Rise Again. It would have won five Dove Awards. All right. Logan's Run, movie, science fiction movie, which became an abortive TV series. Logan's Run was a very uh, powerful movie for a B-grade movie. It, it had almost cult status, spent a lot of uh, money on the thing. And uh, though the TV program was The Pit, always written by somebody who's never read a science fiction book in their life. Logan's Run was a story of a society in the future, uh, matter of fact, a couple of centuries in the future, when apparently most of the Earth above had been destroyed by atomic war. The only survivors of mankind was underground, run by a computer, woman's voice running the place, com a matriarchal computer society. And where uh, the children grew up, and the, the slogan of the movie was, Welcome to the tw 23rd century, where you can have anything you want except your 30th birthday. And the concept was that uh, each kid was cloned off in a nursery, and uh, they were, there was a little gadget in their hands. And as it came time, close to their 30th birthday, this thing began to pulse red. And it became red. The time came for them all to gather in this big, uh, uh, like a sports arena. And they, uh, as people stood around cheering and clapping, they levitated further and further up in the air until lasers burned them out of existence, like fireworks, while everybody cheered. And uh, there were a few dumb people who, uh, who didn't want this to happen. And when they got to be 30, they would run away. But of course, their little blinking thing gave them away, and the computers would just track them down every passage. And they had people called Sandman who put them to sleep. Uh, just killed them, is what it is. And the question you might ask is why did these people happily go like sheep to the slaughter to be lasered out of existence in this uh, great public thing? And only a few people were running away. Because in the future, in the 23rd century, reincarnation was a fact of life. And these people believed, when they went up there, that they were having eternal youth. That when their bodies started to get old at 30, they were cindered out, and immediately they re-entered the nursery again as babies, growing up again. And because that lie was sold to the whole society, people would happily go to their deaths. You must understand this. And this concept becomes burnt into a society, then to put a person to death is not really killing him. It is only recycling because he never learned his lesson. So if you're so dumb you can't understand that these are true, then we will not kill you. We will just recycle you. And of course in the next life you will realize that you were wrong. You understand that? It's a very scary thing. Here's a scripture that goes with it. It will come to pass that those that kill you think they do God a service. All right, that's number two. Now let's take one more, and that's purposes of review. I want to give you now uh, two others. The third one in the Locust Philosophy We will give you as a slogan, which was the fundamental slogan of the velvet-covered monkey wrench. 
an underground manual for the restructuring of American society, written in the late 1960s. And this is the slogan. Mankind must learn to live without contention. Mankind must learn to live without contention. Now, how many of us believe that God wants to bring peace to man's heart? How many of us believe that God wants to bring peace to nations? How many of you know what one of the Beatitudes requires us to be? Blessed are the peacemakers. So of all men, we believe that the important thing in life is not to have a contentious spirit. We believe this. But the way the locust thing phrases it is very, very subtle. It goes something like this. I don't believe in the future, which could be now, I mean in the next six months or a year or any time. I don't believe in the future it'll be wrong to be a Christian. And they'll say this, you want to be a Christian? Fine, you be a Christian. But don't say that anybody else or everybody else has to be what you are. It will not be wrong to be a Christian, to claim to be a Christian, to claim to act like a Christian. The only thing that will be wrong is to be a missionary. So missionaryism will be a sin of any kind of missionaryism. Now you think, we got kids out in the airports selling flowers, we got kids going door to door with uh, boxes of Mickey Mouse candy, and there's going to be a big public reaction one day to all of that. And it's going to say, just let's shut this garbage down. And so there are going to be laws passed that it will be a, a crime to try and convert people from one religious structure to another. And that's already on the books. There is an act called the Genocide Act. The Genocide Act has actually made it capital crime to change a person's religion, which they're born called an act crime against a race. And of course, a modified version of that is now in use in Israel. It makes it a crime to attempt to bribe or persuade by any kind of uh, money or anything else a person from any religion to another one in Israel. Yes. 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 That's exactly right. Now, hopefully this thing will not be, all of its uh, forms will not be carried out in the immediate future. But can you see the danger here? You see how broad-minded this is and how tolerant. You want to be a Christian? Beautiful. Fine, you be a Christian. Just don't say everybody else has to be one. And I guarantee you that the culture of the future will find many people who are Christians like that. You want to be a Christian? Beautiful. You're a Christian. Fine. Be Buddhist, fine. Be Hindu, fine. Islam, fine. Atheist, fine. Be anything you want to. Just don't say everybody else must be what you are. And this is the only way we will learn to live without contention. That it is religious contention. People saying you have to be this, you have to be that. That's caused most of the problems we have in the world, so we'll just cut it out by a law. We cannot afford to learn to live 
with contention. We've got to cut it out and we're going to have to pass laws because the safety of the whole human race is at stake. Therefore, this is a mandate. The only problem with this is that as a Christian, I have a command. And that command is mandatory. Go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I am not allowed an option in this. It is a command. And if I love Jesus Christ, which is the only kind of Christian there is, then I must do what he says. And the Bible picture is not that any religion is good as another, that man and woman without Jesus Christ are lost and damned forever. And I believe that, and I cannot afford to play games with words. And that means this, I'm going to be a weird kind of Christian. I'm going to be one who's not content to let well alone. I'm going to be the kind of person who, like D.L. Moody, there was a lady in an elevator. She's getting into an elevator, and Moody began to speak to her about Christ. And he just witnessed to the lady, and she just, she, you know, she, she was really blown away by Moody, and then finally her husband joined her at the top of the elevator. Moody was still speaking, and the husband, uh, when Mr. Moody left and went on up, talking to her about her soul, and, and the man said to her, what was he talking to you about? She said, talking about Christ. And he said, you should have told him to mind his own business. And she said, if you could have seen the way he looked at me, you would have known it was his business. And that's the way it has to be. You're not people who are just into this for fun. We're in it for life, life or death. We think uh, of Tertullian, that early church father who ran into some people whose business had been making silver idols for people to worship. And they professed conversion. They came to Tertullian, that early church father, and they said, uh, is it all right if we make idols for other people? Because, you know, we don't believe it anymore. We aren't going to worship those. But is it all right if we make them up for other people to worship? Because after all, you have to live. And Tertullian said, must you live? That was the early church's attitude. Living or dying is incidental. Serving Jesus Christ is all that matters. And you've seen that kind of crunch. You've seen it in behind the Iron Curtain where people have uh, put people's lives on the line. All those who, who are ready to deny Jesus move out. We're going to shoot everybody else who's in here. And the guy fires his gun in the air and says, I finally found some real Christians, but I'm, I'd probably die for this, but I'm going to get saved too. And I wanted to find out if anybody else is ready to die before I ever commit myself. Now that thing is happening, and that's where the test is coming down. You think that's behind the curtain. One day it'll come here, the curtain will shift. Could somebody say, God, tear down the iron curtain? I had a friend of mine who just came back. He said, God, put up the iron curtain to keep our kind of Christianity out of Russia. Now, there's a name for this. We could call it humanistic positivism. It's humanistic because it has man at the center. It doesn't think about God. It doesn't think about divine rights. It only cares about man. Man is the whole measure of everything. It's humanistic. Its center is man. Its God is man. Its future is man. And everything revolves around man. Man is the key. It is positivism. It doesn't believe in negative things. It doesn't like negative confession. It doesn't say anything negative. It's always positive. It will positively kill you in a peaceful way. In this concept, exclusive is out, inclusive is in. 
It is wrong to exclude anything. Inclusive means you absorb all things. I call this spiritual constipation. Well, what is spiritual constipation? It's the absorption of everything and the eliminate of nothing. And a normal healthy organism must eliminate that which is useless or it will die. But this culture says, absorb everything. Everything is just as good. You want a little from here, a little from here? You come to my lab and I'll try you out on my line of chemicals and see how you do. A little out of this bottle, a little out of that. Hey, man, it's all beautiful. Everything's fine its own way. That's why engineers get saved sometimes before poets. Because you can't mess around with a thousand volt line in a theoretical way. It's very practical. You touch it, you die. Uh, let's say then that missionaryism is the sin of the future. What does Christ say? Go out in all the world and preach the gospel. Well, I can't help it. I've got to do it. You know what Paul said? Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Even if I didn't want to do it, there's a mandate given to me. I must preach. I preach because I enjoy it, but even if I didn't, I'd still have to do it. It is a command of Christ. Now, I must admit to you, sometimes it's easy. I'm a Maori from background, Maori people. We have a thing called Maori time, which means anywhere up to five hours late. And in the flesh, in the normal old carnal way of living, as a part Maori, it'd be much easier for me to sit in the sun and sip lemonade instead of going out and dragging myself by the neck and saying, get out and do what Jesus told you to do. But that's what he commands us to do. And even if I didn't enjoy it, and I thoroughly do, I enjoy serving God a lot more than I did serving myself. Even if I didn't, I still have a mandate. Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. You can go through the scriptures and see what Jesus says, but I think it should be fairly obvious that we are to go out and preach to all men. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Scripture said that. Now listen, people say, well, that's just, you know, that's just what you feel. What do you feel about this? I don't care what I feel about it. It's not my feelings. It's what God said. All I can do is hand it out. I'm just an ambassador, man. I just work for him. I didn't invent it. People come and say, oh, isn't that a bit rough? I say, I didn't make it up. He made it up. I'm just giving it to you, man. You're going to pick on the guy if he's, uh, if you're an ambassador of the United States of America, see, and, uh, and you have to give a mandate to a country, which is what the United States of America has decided, and it says this is war, well, the guy says, well, you're pretty skinny. I think I could beat you up. It doesn't really matter how skinny you are. The point is, who do you represent? I didn't invent it. I didn't make that up. I just pass it on. I just give it to you. It's your responsibility to read it and decide what you're going to do with it. If you say, well, forget it, Charlie. You do your thing and do mine. I have delivered my soul. It's up to you. Just one day when you stand before God and you have to give an account of your life and he says, do you remember that time when I gave it to you? And you spat and went on your own way because you had better ideas? That was my reaching out in love to you and you turned your back on me then. And you've done it ever since. I didn't make this up. It's not my opinion. It's not my feelings. It's simply what he says. And I frankly don't care whether I'm sick or well or 
skinny or fat or tall or strong or short and weak. The important thing is I've got to get the message as clearly as possible from the boss and pass it on to other people, and that's it. Isn't it interesting that God's first commandment to Israel was not against atheism, but against idolatry? The final culture of man will be a religious one. And the second commandment to Israel did not forbid merely images, but religious tolerance. Any easy accommodation to the cultures and the concepts around them would have destroyed Israel. And Elton Trueblood pointed out in one of his books that the so-called lost ten tribes of Israel never vanished. They simply lost their national identity by absorbing the values and morals and gods of their contemporaries and they perished as a viable force to change the world. Perhaps no other truth will be so challenged in the last days as this one. It sounds so fair and so just and so wise to insist that everybody has a right to live the way they want to and believe what they like. But that's not what God says. God says there's a way that seems right to a man and the end of that way is a way of death. And we're to go out into the highways and byways and compel them to go in. Now let me show you something that I'm very afraid of. And that is a theology based on force. And there have been theologies, and unfortunately sometimes in the Reformation, we have some ugly examples of this. Augustine, for instance, felt that when you baptized a baby, deliver him from sin, and you held him under, he was struggling to resist salvation. That's what he said. That's a quote. Hold him under, struggling to resist salvation. So he used force. And you baptize him. He gets saved by the imposition of a superior will. But the scary thing is from there was only a short step to saying if babies could get saved like that, then you could save adults the same way. And from there, even a great man like Augustine, up to Augustine's time, the Christian church was killed for being Christian. And after Augustine, the church killed people if they didn't become Christians. And that is because whenever, instead of at the heart of the universe, you have love and trust, you have force and fear and pain and threat and persecution as the basis of evangelism, you will see a rebirth of all that is ugly in church history concerning Christianity. And there are only two theologies. There is a legal one that says the way to change is by threat or by bribe. And of course, God gets people's attention by legal means, by threat, or by bribe, but He never saves people like that. Or we have the gospel way, and that is by trust and by love. And nothing, not even a million years in hell, is going to save you if the cross of Jesus Christ and the love of God is expressed in the atonement of Jesus. It doesn't change your life. You go and ask a man who's put in prison whether his time in prison has converted him, whether now he is a man who loves his fellow man, who will uh, always do that which is right because he's learned his lesson. You go and ask him. See if the law has any power to change a man once he's broken it. The truth is, the law can only harden a man once he's broken it. It requires the gospel to save a man. And if, if that... Not even a million years in hell is going to change a man's heart if the gospel can't save him. No 
punishment, no threat, no bribes, no rewards offered, have no power to change sinner's heart. Only the gospel. And we have only two fundamental ways in church history in which evangelism has taken place. One on a legal basis and one on a gospel basis. And the thing that I fear very, very much is that Christians, in reacting to this humanism which is coming down, will revert back to a pre-Reformation Day forced theology and where they get such great concepts of the sovereignty of God and their sovereignty inside it that they'll go out demanding that people get saved or they'll kill them. And we have a whole record of the history of massacres and Albigensian crusades and the Spanish Inquisition. And, and I've got diaries of the crusaders, how we went out and hacked up those pagans. It's unbelievable. Is this the Spirit of Christ? Remember when Jesus went out into a village and they all rejected him and spurned him and all the sons of thunder there? Well, called him, Lord, you want us to call on fire from heaven? Jesus said, you don't know what manner of man you are. I didn't come to destroy men's lives, I came to save them. And I wish some of our historical figures like Luther and Calvin and Augustine and others had learned that lesson in their day. They burned people at the stake and they said nasty things. I have a quote in my thing there. I usually read it out to people and ask, who do you think said this? And they say Hitler. And it was Luther. So what we need today is a theology that has power that exalts the Lordship of Jesus Christ, but it is founded on trust and in love, not in threat and fear. Now there's a real hell and there's a real heaven. One to shun and the other one to go to. But Jesus Christ saves by love and by trust. He doesn't save by threat and by bribe. Legal means never saved anybody. Sometimes it gets your attention. You have a guy with bombs falling around him in Vietnam. He goes, oh, God, you get me out of this, I'll serve you. The rest. That's called getting your attention. If he doesn't get a gospel message then, it's going to last just as long as the bombs are falling. After that, well, hell, I'm glad I got out of that instead of thank God, and drinks and then goes back to what he did before. That's the sinner, making promises to God under threat, immediately backing out when the threat is gone. Oh, we here yesterday, Madeline Murray said, thank God, oops, I mean, <laughs> oops. <laughs> and she said, my God, that's right, she said, my God, what do you say? Oop. <laughs> All right, here's the last one. And here's the final culmination of this demonic thing. All life is in reality one with God. Now this is the culmination of the locust philosophy. It is the ultimate aim to which everything is headed. The final stage of demonic enlightenment is that salvation consists in realizing something that has always been true. Namely, each individual is in his true self, identical with and wholly at one with God. Now, in Krishna consciousness, for instance, 
you're given, and also in, uh, in other Eastern thought forms. The mantra, Hare Krishna, Hare Rama, Rama Rama, and all this uh, Rama 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 stuff. Mantra comes from two Sanskrit words, man the mind, try to deliver. And the word mantra means to deliver the mind. And its concept is to deliver an individual from the false concept that his identity lies in his self. To release him to the realization that he is not himself, he is in reality one with the divine. And here is what Eastern salvation is. You think you are you. You think you're an individual, personal individual that has his own ego, has his own importance, has his own value and his own distinct personality. And that is sin. That is a lie. That is illusion. You are not yourself. In reality, you are one with the whole of the divinity. But you think you are you, and because you think you are you and personal, you're causing all these problems with the rest of the universe because of your selfishness. The way to eliminate selfishness is to eliminate the you-ness. Get rid of the self, you got no selfishness. All you got is ishness. So, what you have to do is to realize this truth. And so salvation in the East is a mental concept. It's not moral, it's mental. It has to do with realizing something or understanding something or knowing something or having something revealed to you that has always been true. You just didn't know it. And that's why you have the SRF fellowship, self-realization fellowship. Or you come for enlightenment. Or Guru Maharaj, you will lay the light and the word and the nectar on you. And whichever technique is used, whether cosmic consciousness through mantra meditation or uh, Krishna consciousness, the praising, the worshipping of God in order to yoke you through royal yoga back to God, whatever forms they are, ultimately it's the same fundamental realization that you are not yourself, that you are one with divinity. Illustration that's most often used in the East is a drop of water which falls into the ocean. Now they say, of course, nobody is God. A man who goes around and says he is God is crazy. That's like a drop of water saying he is the ocean. But the drop of water contains all the elements of the ocean. If you wanted to put it simply, it has the same stuff as the ocean. It just thinks it's separate from the ocean. And its separateness causes its loneliness and its pain and its problem. To have full happiness, the drop must go back into the ocean in which it loses its own individual distinctness and merges with the whole. And that is what salvation is. When you lose your own individual identity and merge again with the whole. When you do that, you drop off the wheel. You no longer get born again. You no longer have to come back again and again and again and be born again and again and again, which is hell. And you make it. That's salvation. To be lost. As an individual with a distinct personality to be swallowed up in the whole, the divine. Now, quite in contrast to this in Scripture, God says that your stuff is different from His stuff, that He is unmade stuff and you are made stuff, and the whole universe is made stuff and His isn't. So His stuff is different from your stuff, not the same stuff at all. He, Tarzan, you, Jane, very different, absolutely different, as a matter of fact. And there is an absolute difference 
between what God is in Scripture, uncreated spirit, and the whole of the rest of the universe, created. There will never be any metaphysical oneness between man and God. There is no such thing as a metaphysical salvation. And as a matter of fact, God says, what I want you to realize is that your problem is that you are not one with me. Morally. Not metaphysically. Morally. You have alienated yourself from me by your sin, by your rebellion, by your selfishness. All right? There is another thing that those of you who are studying theology might be interested in. The concept of the eternal now, we'll just throw in as a sideline here. But in the eternal now, which is basically an Eastern concept, and many Christian theologians consider it useful to describe the eternal concepts with God, the eternal now teaches in effect that uh, the universe had no real beginning if you knew what God knew. There never was a beginning to the universe. The only tragedy with that is, if that is true, then you are eternal. You are infinite. You have always been here if you only knew what God knew. And if that be true, then what the East teaches is right, and that last one is not demonic at all, it's Christian theology. So I believe that this concept is not strictly a Christian concept, but an Eastern one. The Bible teaches eternity. It does not teach eternal now. We'll throw that one in. That didn't cost any extra either. And all philosophers will deeply dig into that. Let me give you now the name of a book like you read for a horror story. It's done by one of the great science fiction writers of our time, Arthur C. Clarke. Clark is such a genius, he actually invented the concept of the satellite to relay television and radio messages around the Earth. If he'd have patented it, he'd be a multi-billionaire by now. He just came up with it in a science fiction story and wrote it. And they thought, boy, what a great idea. Hitchhiked on it and built it. Clark wrote a book called Childhood's End which is kind of a close encounters of a third kind book. It's an account of mankind's first contact with another civilization. And the thing that is scary about this book is this. In the front of Clark's book, it is the only book in which he says this. The ideas of this book are not those of the author. It's the only book he ever puts that in. Now, who in the world, why in the world put that in the front of a book? And what does he say in the book? In the book, uh, man makes contact with the first extraterrestrial beings. I have a record here. I might read a little bit out of it tonight of what they look like. One of them comes out with two earth children on each arm, very tall. Shocks everybody what he looks like. But the last man left alive on earth watches the mutation of earth's children. And they lose their individual identity. They become like a mass of swirling uh, little cells. And what is happening is Earth's, all of Earth is moved into its final evolutionary stage. 
and that is there is no individuals, each one is just a cell in a great cosmic mind, which is now being added. So, they don't even think as individuals. Each one thinks as a cell of the whole. So that each cell shares the intelligence of the whole, the power of the whole, but none has their own individual personality. That's the end of humanity as Arthur C. Clarke sees it. The last and final great stage of evolution. We become part of the cosmic mind. And that's Eastern vision. And he is not a mystic. He's a hardcore science fiction writer. Technology extended. All right, I've given you all of these. These four damning, damning concepts, which there are other ones that are unique to some Eastern thought forms, but these four in the 12 years I've studied Eastern thought forms are the major ones I can pick out. And if you look at these, we could ask this question. Are these concepts new? Are they fairly recent? Could we trace them back perhaps to India? Well, we can go a lot back further than the tragedy that is India. You can go back even further than the tragedy that is Egypt. As a matter of fact, you can go all the way back to the dawn of recorded history. And the four that I've got up there were the first four lies that were ever told to the human race. And they're being told again, exactly the same way, almost with the same words, in your day, in your time. They happened, as a matter of fact, in Genesis 3, verses 1 through to 5, where a certain snake once assured a young lady that she would not die, not surely, and that what her creator said to her was probably subject to some modification on her part, if not misinterpretation or reinterpretation, you know, that that's probably not absolutely true what he said. He probably meant something else or it's probably not part of the whole. Um, he doth know that in the, in the when you eat, you'll be as gods. And that was the uh, next one. You shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So, uh, she could quite simply become like God without the necessity of obeying Him or become morally like Him. Four lies, old and cynical and as murderous as the mind that first sowed him in the garden. And unfortunately, the snake was a liar and so are his sons. And the girl did die and she took the whole human race with her. And people after people are doing exactly the same thing in our day. That, friends, is the East and its major contributions to the West. Now what is funny is this. Out of Western thought forms of which were rooted in Christian tradition and history came science with the vast explosion of what we have called scientific world. The East never could have developed science in this way because their picture of the universe was different. So what is funny is this. People from the West are going to the East to find spiritual roots. And people from the East are going to the West to pick up technology. 
And the people from the West are afraid to look into their heritage lest they discover that their technology came out of their Christian premises. And the funny thing is, is that the people from the West who go to the East to get their answers come from nice middle-class or upper-class homes and they get enough money to get themselves a plane ticket over there and a passport and traveler's checks to travel the world and to study the ancient things to get enlightenment. And they walk in the middle of a destroyed nation where the rats eat enough in one day to feed an entire state full of children. But where India's bought demonic concepts have eaten the heart out of that great nation. And they walk through all of that seeking enlightenment. That is a terrible tragedy. You know what happens? I stand up in a university and I say... God is a God of love and wisdom. And some person says to me, if God is a God of love, why India? Why Bangladesh? And I said, don't you put those damnable concepts on God. He didn't come up with those. He sent out his people to destroy them in the old days. When man and woman gave themselves over to these things, God sent his people in and said, eradicate them. Don't leave one trace of it. And good old Saul with typical genius, spared the best. You may look at that Amalekite destruction command and say, boy, what an awful thing. How cruel of God. God sees further than people do. And he looked at the tragedy that was going to come up India and he said, slay utterly. And some jerk said no. Now there's millions of people dying. Millions of people in pain. Millions of people destroyed. The same damnable thing circulated through the world. God knows what he's doing. If he says slightly, you do it. Don't spare one thing. It's that preserving of the best, the keeping of. We know better than God. He says utterly, but we'll keep the best to make a sacrifice for him. We'll take all our wonderful ideas and we'll give them back to God and ask him to bless our idiotcy. And the Christian church gets shafted for what has grieved the heart of God too long. There are four locusts, four things that have eaten out the heart of the east and are now coming west by the thousand. When did this first begin? In the 1930s, there was a conference on spiritual, um, I forgot what it was, spiritual things or something. It was a world uh, conference on world religions in Chicago. And a young man who had been trained in a Christian Sunday school, a reprobate guy who rejected the gospel, but just like old mayonnaise that I told you about, collected a bunch of Christian concepts. His name was Swami Vivekananda, an excellent communicator, a very powerful speaker, took Eastern concepts, modified them, took scripture verses, made them over for Western minds, and came across and totally wowed the people. And they're all sitting there saying, man, we're sending missionaries to India, we need missionaries to come from India here. And here they are, by the millions. And you're witnessing, you're living in this day. Some of you come from backgrounds like that. Those four things are the heart of the locust philosophy. To deal with those, you must take the opposites and do your study and do your research. You've got to come up with opposite things to that because the Bible is very clearly against the four things I've given you. Here they are. All right, that's the end of uh, part two 
of the uh, Day of the Day of the Locust. Uh, that was the um, I don't know how many that is, but the, this whole series started with um, episode number twenty six was four fundamental needs, and that was a two parter, and we're up to uh, thirty one. Right now, uh, the next part coming up is called Psychic Technology, and we'll have uh, part one of that up for you next week. So uh, be, be sure to uh, tell your friends, and don't forget, you can find us at moh.org. You can get us on iTunes, podbean.com, or the Podbean app for your um, iPhone or your Android phone. And uh, thanks for tuning in to the uh, MOH podcast, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>